can hear myself this morning. Well, if you didn't get the memo, it's summer. Um, man, it's my favorite time of year. I love it. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. We appreciate you. Uh, so much so, we have a free gift for you out in the foyer at the end of the service. Look for the teenagers holding the yellow books and go snag one. But a uh, really great resource by a guy named Michael Reeves uh, called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. My favorite thing about this book is it's small and the chapters are like three pages. Quick, easy read. That's my jam. Uh, just a few quick announcements. Last week, I had talked about, mentioned uh, wise words for our graduating seniors as we recognized them last Sunday morning. As of about an hour ago, on the front page of the church website, if you scroll down, there's a button you can click that says senior words or something like that. And you can fill out a form with some wise words, or you could just give me a letter. Uh, that form has the list of all of our graduated, seven or so um, graduating seniors. Um, if you want to write a specific note to one of them, get that to me. Uh, preferably by Thursday. Uh, if not, just drop it off. I'm gone for a while. So uh, drop it off at the church office and we'll get it where it needs to go. Uh, another announcement, baptism got pushed to July 24th. Uh, so it was the 17th, moving a, a another week to July 24th. If you are interested in baptism, want to know more, uh, contact the church office. Church, if you would, will you stand with us as we pray to begin this worship service? God, we are just so grateful for who you are. You are loving, gracious, merciful, faithful God. God, as we enter into a time of worship, just we just want we just want you. So remove all the distractions, remove the, remove all the noise, and help us just be here and worship you together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Good morning. Let us uh, read our call to worship <coughs> together this morning. It's found in Psalms one hundred, verses one through five. <coughs> Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness Amen. Today is the day, people. Casting, casting my cares aside. I'm leaving my past behind. I'm setting my heart and mind on you. Jesus, I'm reaching my hand to yours, believing there's so much more, knowing that all you have in store for me is good, it's good, today is the day you have made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, today is the day you have made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, and I won't worry about tomorrow. I'm trusting in what you say. Today is the day. I'm putting my fears aside. I'm leaving my past behind. I'm giving my hopes and dreams to you. Jesus, I'm reaching my hands to yours, believing there's so much more, there's 
Who 
can't stop the Lord. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Who can stop? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before
all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able oh I will sing of the goodness of God oh I will sing of the good Just lift our voices to him, church. of your goodness and your faithfulness in that powerful song. We're reminded that we can always trust on you, in you and rely upon you. I pray, Father, that in these moments of trials and these moments of doubts, that you would cause our hearts and minds to cling faithfully to your word, to remember your goodness, to remember your past faithfulness, to remember how you have cared for us so lovingly, graciously, and compassionately. God, I pray for each of us this morning, where, wherever we've um, come in from, whatever our, our heart, whatever's going on in our hearts and our minds this morning, that you would please speak to us right here where we are. Please meet us where we're at and allow our eyes to be opened up to the beauty of your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Welcome, and once again, I know Hunter already said it, but happy Father's Day 
We sure are glad you're here worshiping with us, and, uh, and dads, make sure that you, you grab that gift on the way out a little bit later on. Uh, we just want to celebrate you today, and we hope that God blesses your day today. Um, before we open up uh, God's word to the book of Jonah together, I want to just give a brief word of thanks to all those who helped make VBS happen this week. There was so much work that went into everything that took place, and God blessed and, and just um, and honored, and it was great to see lives touched and how many kids we had around. So we would just take a moment and thank all those that volunteers that helped make that happen. Would you join me in Jonah chapter 1? We'll continue our study here of this powerful book. And I just want to say right at the outset here as well, we're going to spend a, um, a couple of weeks um, in the, the first chapter. And so if you begin to think, uh, hey, listen, um, is it, is it going to take us like six months to go through this four-chapter book? Uh, don't fear. We're not going to do that. But there, just, there are some really... Uh, important treasures and truths uh, tucked away in chapter one that I think lay the foundation for the rest of our study. And so we will spend a little bit more time in chapter one than we do in the, in the rest of the book. I want to read these uh, first six verses to you and then, and then read an excerpt of a, of a story that'll kind of lay the foundation for what we want to talk about this morning. Jonah chapter one and the first six verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The title of today's message is A Great Storm Arose, and we're going to talk a little bit about storms and the, the trials that come along with them. And I just want to read to you an excerpt from this book by Dave Furman. If you're not familiar with him, you'll learn a little bit about him through this, through this story. He writes, the community was abuzz as our neighbors prepared for the big religious holiday. Everyone on our street was in a good mood and extra cheerful, but I had no desire to leave our house and interact with anyone. It was difficult to go anywhere with the nerve spasms radiating through my arms. When our family left the house to run errands, my agony only intensified. We provided quite a scene for our neighbors to observe their, through their upstairs windows. First, my wife Gloria buckled our daughter into her car seat. And then she came over to the other side of the vehicle to help me. She opened my door, waited until I sat down, reached over and buckled my seatbelt, closed my door and walked through the yard and opened the gate, drove the car out of the driveway, got out and closed the gate, and then returned to the car and drove us away. Then when we returned home, we repeated the scene in reverse, but this time my wife carried all of the groceries in addition to the baby into our home. Did I mention she was also pregnant? We came to the village intending to change the world for Jesus, but I couldn't even change my genes without help. My nerve ailment had come back, and it was nastier than ever. I was depressed, incorrigible, and seething with anger toward God, my wife, and everyone around me. Four months prior to our arrival in the Middle East, I had extensive surgery. Both my arms were operated on at the same time, and the recovery was traumatic. Years previously, I had developed a neurological disorder and lost almost all arm strength and suffered constant burning sensations in both arms. After a couple of years of deteriorating strength, I was now disabled. 
I could barely use my arms. We had tried just about every other treatment option, so we were hopeful surgery would finally provide healing. My health improved after the procedure, and my strength increased with physical therapy, so we went forward with our plans to move overseas. We were eager to start, uh, start church planning work, and we hoped I would finally have the quote-unquote normal, healthy body I remembered and was now dreaming of. Then in one moment, everything fell apart. I had dropped Gloria off at a supermarket, but could not find a parking space. I drove up and down the parking aisles, waiting until she was done shopping. As I made a left turn, I felt a sharp burning pain in both my arms. I instantly lost all strength. Tears flooded my face. The soreness was back. Not only had my pain returned, but it was worse than before. I lost all dexterity in my fingers. I lost, uh, I lost all dexterity in my hands and developed boil-like wounds on my fingers. I couldn't stand to touch anything. I was on high-dosage medications for my nerve pain and for anxiety and depression. At one point, when I ran out of the depression medication and could not refill it in our new country, I felt like I was losing my mind. I paced up and down the length of our bedroom most nights as I yelled at myself and to myself. I tried reading Christian books, but none of them performed the magic trick of emotional transformation I hoped for. We even watched all nine seasons of a celebrated sitcom in an attempt to cheer up, but it was to no avail. I simply wanted to die. You know, some of you have experienced storms where you've felt something similar, maybe not quite to the depth that Dave explains here in his story, but you've, you've experienced a storm in your life that has, has left you maybe hurt, left you reeling, left you scratching your head, left you angry with those around you, with God. We're going to read about another storm here today that brought with it a great deal, a great many of consequences for not just Jonah, but for those around him. Jonah's storm in this story, it was an actual storm, but it was also a, a spiritual and, and a storm. It was a trial for Jonah and those around him. And we're going to learn some things about storms in our life here this morning. And so we're going to get right into it. And the, the first thing that I, I just want to share with you is that we need to remember that God is more involved in our storms than what we think. God is more involved in our storms than what we think. So here it is, Jonah's in disobedience to God. He's running, fleeing, trying to get as far away from God. And remember, it's not just him trying to get away from his job, but the text actually tells us he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And while we recognize the folly in that, in the moment, he just wants to get away. He's angry, he's frustrated, and, and, and passionately um, wants nothing to do with the Ninevites. And so he's fleeing. And we tell, the, the text tells us in verse 4, depending on your translation, verse 4 says, The Lord threw, or the Lord hurled, a great wind onto the sea. The actual Hebrew word here is the word for throw. It's the same word that's used in 1 Samuel 18, 11. Remember when Saul gets angry at David and is trying to kill him and he takes his spear and he throws it at David, trying to pin him against the wall, the text says. It's the same Hebrew word for throw. God is very involved in this storm. This, is, this storm does not just happen to crop up here out of the blue. The Lord threw, the text says. The Lord put into Jonah's life and the sailors and everybody on board this great storm. Sometimes when trials come our way and difficulties come our way, we feel like we've got to make excuses for God and try to separate him from what's happening in our life. But the scriptures paint a much more God-involved portrait when it comes to our trial than so often what we think of. For example, in Lamentations 3.38, we read, Do not both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Isaiah tells us in chapter 45, verse 7, I've, God is speaking here, and he says, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. These verses make us squirm just a little bit to see that God is involved 
in these severe and heavy trials of our life. Now, what we're going to see in just a moment, and what's probably obvious to you from the text, is that Jonah was getting his, his just desserts, right? Jonah's trial is the result of his own sinful choices. We kind of say, well, yeah, sure. God's punishing Jonah for his outright disobedience. But what about when it's not the result of sin? Sometimes we feel like we've got to try to separate God from what's going on in our life. And the Bible paints a picture of a sovereign God who's at work doing far more than we can ever imagine. In the book of Ephesians, we're told, and we read this a few weeks ago, but it says, in him we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one, listen, of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. That everything means everything. God is at work to bring about everything to his glory. Remember what, what the, the whole situation with Joseph and his brothers? And all the evil things that they did to him. And at the end of the story, Joseph could say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What, it didn't just tell us that God's, like he, God's out there and he's sort of figured out a way to make it good. There's purpose in the statement. What you meant for evil, God had a plan. God meant it for good. God took the evil decisions, the evil, the sin, the sin of his brothers, the wickedness, the, the, the circumstances of uh, Potiphar's wife tempting Joseph, all these things that happened to him. He wasn't being punished. They were things that happened to him, and God was behind the scenes working for good. Now, I want to add this. Tim Keller says this. We, we must tread carefully. The first chapters of Genesis teach us that God did not create the world and the human race for suffering, disease, natural disasters, aging, and death. Evil entered into the world when we turned away from God. God has tied his heart to us such that he sees the sin and the suffering, uh, the sin and suffering in the world, and his heart is filled with pain. In Isaiah 63, 9, we're told, in all our affliction, he too is afflicted. God is not like a chess player casually moving us pawns around the board, nor is it usually clear until years later, and if ever in this life, what good God was accomplishing in the difficulties we suffered. I want you to remember this, that when we come into the storms of life, whether it's through the result of our own stupidity, as in Jonah's case, or whether it's the result of other people's decisions around us, or living in a sinful world, or natural disasters, we have to believe that our God is sovereign, and he's at work, and he's doing things that we can't see. We don't have God's playbook. We don't, we don't have it all sketched out. He, he didn't submit his, his business plans ahead of time. He didn't explain to us what he's doing, and not, I mean, in broad brushstrokes, to be sure, in the scriptures, but often in our day-to-day -day trials, He's calling us to trust him, even though we have no clue what's going on in the middle of the storm. This leads us into the next thing that I want to point us to from this text, is that storms are complicated. Storms are complicated. Please, please be oh so careful when you're giving advice to somebody who's in the middle of a storm. Please. Job's friends did something really wise when they first arrived there. What did they do when they first met Job? They were silent. They sat there and just were with Jonah. When someone is going through a storm, let that be your default. Sit with them. Don't dole out, don't dole out advice. Don't try to figure out their problems. Don't tell them to get over it. Don't just quote trite scripture phrases at them without entering into their suffering with them. Be with them. Because storms are complicated. Think about this for a second. Why was, why was Jonah in the middle of this actual storm? Because why? He was running from God. Now, why were the sailors in the midst of this storm? Because of Jonah's sin. They, they didn't do anything to earn this trial. They, they had not sinned. Now, okay, one could argue that they were pagans and, and didn't worship the one true God. So yes, in a sense, yes, they are sinners, just like all of us are. 
I mean, if, if we go down that road, then all of us deserve suffering all the time because we're all sinners, right? But that's not the way God works. These sailors had no clue what was going on in their lives. Imagine somebody coming along and trying to explain to them why they were suffering. In fact, this is what they were trying to do. They were going around, okay, who, who brought this upon us? They were trying to get to the bottom of it. These things are complicated. There's rarely just one clear right answer as to why things are going on in our lives and in the world around us. There's so many different factors when it comes to suffering. There's our sin, like Jonah. And I, and I, love, I love how God is in this, in this story, and we're going to see more of it in the coming weeks, not as much today. But you see, even in our stupidity, God never ever says things to us like, like maybe we dads, it's Father's Day, like we dads could have used this line, well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. I mean, how many of us have said that or had our own dads say that to us? But you know what? God never says that to us. God never, God never says that. Even if we're being corrected and disciplined, God says, I'm here and in my grace, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm not just watching you squirm for the sake of your own bad decisions and saying, well, now you've you got to live with the consequences. I'm here to teach you. I'm here to walk with you. I'm here to see you grow closer to my heart, even in your sin. We're going to see this. But I, Johnny Erickson Tata lists several other broad categories for why storms come into our life. She mentions other people. Think about it from the sailor's perspective here. They knew nothing about what was going on with Jonah. Dale Ralph Davis says this, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. We may never know and see why we're walking through a trial, why we're going through this heartbreaking time of physical or emotional pain, but you know what? that may be touching somebody's life that you'll never, ever meet or never, ever know. God is at work in the middle of storms despite our short-sightedness. She lists other causes for trials and suffering. She mentions Satan and his demons. Nature, she lists things like animals and plants. A mosquito bite brings malaria. Farm animals that, that create an accident on the farm or a, a falling tree changing a life. She mentions natural disasters or even man-made disasters, man-made uh, things that, uh, whether it's war or a bridge collapses. She mentions bodily afflictions. And then lastly, psychological and spiritual afflictions, which in many ways are tied to all of them. Suffering and storms, they're complicated. They're complicated. And in the middle of our, our storm, we're so tempted and I say we because every time I'm in the same place, I want to figure it out. I, I, I want to understand. I want to see what caused this. And oftentimes we don't get an answer from God. What he's doing is calling us to himself. In Jonah's case, the situation was clear. He sinned, but the answer is still the same. He's beckoning Jonah back to himself. Whether the trial is a result of our own stupidity or as the result of someone around us, or a result of unexplainable circumstances, God is always doing this in the midst of a storm. He's calling your name. He's calling my name. And he's calling us to draw close to him. To hold on to the mast. To cling tightly to him in the midst of that storm. I don't pretend to know how all this works together. God's sovereignty and human actions, they come together in ways we can't fully comprehend. It's, it, it's, a, it's, it's what is called by theologians compatibilism. One writer says God's plans work through our choices, not around or despite them. Our choices have consequences, real, actual consequences. And we're never forced by God to do anything. We always do what we most want to do. And God works out his will perfectly through our willing actions. How those things come together, I don't fully understand. And then you bring in things that are a result of nobody's choices, whether it's, it's weather-related things or cancer. And sometimes we step back and we say, God, I, I just I don't understand. And that's okay. Because what he wants from us is not understanding the why of the trial, but he wants us to meet him in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the storm. 
so much more we could say, but I want to move on. The third thing I want you to make note of is that storms can get really, really bad. Storms can get really, really bad. Verse 4 tells us, The Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the, th- the ship threatened to break apart. Now, th- this, was, this was an unexpected storm. It came out of nowhere. In fact, they, they sort of, the sailors worked their sailing around the, the, the sailing seasons, as it were. So they knew like there was a time of year where you just didn't sail because the, the storms were worse and there was greater chances of shipwreck. And so they would take months off from sailing and wait till the good part of the year. So the idea was that this was a good season for sailing. And, and nobody expected this to come up. And despite being inexperienced sailors, they, they were terrified. They, they, were, they were left just like, they were fearing for their lives. This was something that, that they had probably not seen before. And the, the phrasing, at least in my translation here, it says that the, the ship threatened to break apart. Another, another way of saying this, because it, the, the Hebrew is using some a vivid language. Hebrew is great for that. Uh, it, it, the, the, the literal translation, one writer uh, noted, is that the ship expected itself to crack up. There, there's this idea, like this is imminent. This is how bad the storm is. It's, it's, it's beating against the ship, and it's ready to go down. In fact, um, I, I, was, I was listening to the, my Hebrew is not good at all, but I was listening to a rabbi read this text uh, in an audio recording, and there's Hebrews constantly using even sound to communicate ideas. And the, the end of verse 4, speaking of the waves crashing against the vessel, um, is, is hishabah lehishabah. It's the, the, the picture of just the waves the, the coming against the, the, way, the, the, the ship, just pounding against it over and over and over again. This storm was deadly. You know, probably many of you could preach this point much better than I can. Sometimes, sometimes trials go on, these storms go on for a long, long time. They are really, really bad. Sometimes our trial is our, our kids give us a, a, a difficult time getting off to school one day, or, or we we don't have enough money to pay a certain bill. But sometimes trials become a long, enduring, and deeply painful thing. Sometimes trials, sometimes storms can get really, really bad. What we need to remember in these times is that the same God who gets us through those like one-hour storms or those one-day storms is the same God who's with us in the middle of that one month, one year, one decade, one lifetime storm. The same God who is present, the same God who is at work in and through the small storms is at work in and through the great big ones. The fourth thing that I want to point us to from this text is that that storms are an act of God's grace. This is a really counterintuitive thought. This is something that, that we bristle against. Even as I say it, it's difficult to say out loud. Because most storms, well, we don't want them. Like, like it's nice to watch a summer storm from inside the house. When you know that it's not going to rip apart your yard or throw a tree on top of your roof... It's, it's, it's beautiful to watch the lightning and to hear the rain pattering upon your, your shingles. It's a, it's a completely different thing to be caught out in the middle of the storm. And it can be very difficult to think, seriously, this is God's grace? This is God, God's here somewhere? God's doing something in the midst of this? One writer says, the wind and the storm it provoked were like a warning shot across the bow. The divine warrior chastened his prophet as he nudged Jonah toward a new frontier of divine mercy. You see, what we're going to see without giving away the ending of the book is that, is that the things that Jonah learned through this storm 
he would never have learned any other way. The depths of God's mercy and grace into which he plunged, both literally and figuratively, were depths that he would never have experienced without a storm. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her first husband to natives whom they were trying to reach with the gospel, lost her second husband to cancer, once wrote that suffering is never for nothing. God is always at work. We can see from just a couple sampling passages, places like Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, when Paul says that we boast in our afflictions. We boast in our afflictions. Because, he's going to tell us why, because that's a crazy statement. We boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And he goes on to say, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. When we can't see what's going on in the midst of the storm, we must, we absolutely must cling to the promises of God that our afflictions are producing in us something that we cannot manufacture on the mountaintop and in the sunshine, in the hammock. Storms produce things in us and experiences with God that no amount of Airbnb days could ever create. James tells us, so bluntly as James is prone to do, he says, Consider it great joy. <laughs> Again, there's rejoicing. He doesn't just say grit your teeth and get through it. Fine, God, what do you want me to learn here? Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. And he's not just talking about being persecuted for your faith. Various trials. The idea is all the junk that comes our way, even the the junk that's a result of our sin and stupidity like Jonah. Whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't have to tell you how counterintuitive this is. I've been doing this Christian life thing for a long time, and this is still really, really hard. If any of you feel like you do a great job going straight to joy, and I'm not being sarcastic here, if any of you feel like you do a great job of going straight to joy when afflictions come, I would like to talk to you. You're preaching next Sunday. <laughs> this, is, this is really, really hard. This is... This, is, this goes against every fiber of the natural man, the natural person inside of us, the way that we were born into sin. My natural being says, get rid of affliction. Get rid of bad stuff. Get, run away as fast as you can. And God says, these storms are a gift to help you become more like my son. They will forge and shape character that cannot be formed in the most precious and beautiful quiet time with God. As, as precious and powerful as those can be. Storms are necessary. God's storms reveal his deep love for us. Once again, I love what Tim Keller says. He says, if you work long and hard in the cause of Christ, there may be times when you feel that, that God cares about what you're doing more than he cares about you. It, it isn't so. If God cared only about getting his work done, he would have ditched Jonah and sent someone else to Nineveh. If the work was all that mattered, God could have abandoned Jonah 
in the self-indulgent resentment that gripped his heart after the people of Nineveh had repented later in the story. But God cared about Jonah, and God cares about you more than you can imagine. You see, God is interested in drawing us near. And he'll do whatever it takes to break down our pride, our will, our our resentment, our our self-sufficiency, our idolatry, so that there's nothing that stands between us and him. So by way of application as we close, I just want to mention four things just just to set your mind upon as, as we finish up here. The first one is this, wake up. <laughs> you may have noticed that uh, that's exactly what happened here. They're, they're, they're throwing sh- stuff over the, 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 off the ship here, and they're, they're, um, they're trying to figure out who has brought this storm upon them. And it says in verse 6, the captain came to Jonah and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Or some texts say, Wake up! Call to your God! Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. The the word from the captain is a good word for us. Trials, storms are a great time for us to wake up, to listen to the voice of God, to hear what he has to say. Pay attention to what God is saying in the midst of the storm because he's always saying something. God is not up there throwing random storms into our life with no purpose. Even if we can't see what it is, God is at work. Secondly, be like the sailors and cry out to God in your storm. Verse 5 says, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. I get it. They were pagans. They were calling out to gods that didn't exist. I get that. But even their natural impulse was to know that there's somebody out there that can do something about this. (laughs) Listen. As believers, we know who that person is. We know who that one is. It's the one true God. And Jonah's going to talk to them about the one true God in next week's message. We know who to go to. But how often we try to just grit our teeth or we complain or we whatever instead of going to God. He longs for his children to cry out to him. The greatest, the greatest school for prayer is suffering. We may not want to admit it, but I will, you and I will learn more about suffering in the mid, because of trials and storms than we ever will from any book we ever read. That doesn't mean, dads, I don't want to encourage you to read that book on prayer that we're giving you today as a gift, because it's going to have some gems in there to help you in these moments. But go to God. Don't let your heart lock up. Don't let bitterness begin to take root. Don't let anger and frustration cloud your ability to see God in the storm. He longs for you and I to cry out to him. Thirdly, storms are a great time to throw stuff overboard. I I might be stretching the text a little bit here. I don't know. Maybe a homiletics teacher would give me a hard time about this. But the sailors knew instinctively as sailors that, that, that they needed to lighten the load. They needed to get rid of stuff so that the boat had a better chance of making it through the storm. Now, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a mariner. I don't understand uh, all that has to take place in order to weather a, uh, an actual storm on the sea. But I imagine that they were doing the right thing. That, that, that by making it lighter, it was able to sit on top of the water a little bit better. I don't know. But uh, it, when we think about this spiritually, though, it's, it's actually a pretty good parallel. Like, storms are a time for us to step back and say, God, what are you doing? Are, are you trying to prune something in my heart? Because typically, uh, th- there's, I mean, we're sinners. Even though we're redeemed sinners, if you're a follower of Christ, even though you're made a new creation in Christ, th- there's still junk that God is trying to prune out of our life. Storms are a great time to throw things overboard because we're reminded that that. that there's, there's some sin. There's stu- Even if it, sin wasn't the cause of it, this, Job's story is perfect with that. It wasn't that Job's sin caused his suffering. That's so clear from the story. But in the midst of his suffering, 
Job had to learn that there were some sins in his life that he had to deal with, some serious spiritual pride and arrogance. So even if it's not our own folly, our own sin that has caused the trial, the storm that we're in the midst of, there's definitely some sin to deal with in our own hearts in the midst of that storm. And then finally, so importantly, remember who's in the storm with you. You see, when we fast forward a few hundred pages in the book, there's another storm that is causing great terror among the sailors, namely the disciples. You can read this about this storm in each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these sailors, too, were fearful for their lives. The storm was that bad. These sailors had no idea why the storm was going on. They were in the midst of an actual storm that was giving, and giving cause to a storm in their hearts. The difference between Jonah's and theirs is there was someone else in the boat, visibly. We know God was present in the midst of Jonah's story, but God was in the presence of Jesus and he was in the midst of that storm in such a real and tangible way. And in that situation, he calmed the storm for these disciples and demonstrated power that was beyond anything they could ever fathom. And they were even fear, they, they were just as afraid after the storm as they were in the midst of it. They said, Who is this that commands even the winds and the waves to be still? Jesus was right there in the storm with the disciples. But it gets even better than that because not only did Jesus weather an actual storm, he weathered a deeper storm. His death upon the cross means that our suffering and our hurts, our storms, they're not meaningless. Jesus was forsaken in his suffering so that we would not be forsaken in ours. Jesus paid for our sins as the Father turned his face away to guarantee that God would never turn his face away from you and I, no matter how bad the storm rages. Dave Furman's story doesn't end with him wanting to die. He goes on to write this. He said, all that we read earlier, he said, that was 10 years ago. Fast forward to today, and I wish my story had a happy ending to share with you, but it doesn't, at least not in the way that most people describe as happy. I'm not physically healed. Although I have reasonable control over my arms and hands, I'm still disabled. I can't drive, shake hands, pick up my children, open most doors, put on my seatbelt, flush the toilet, turn a key do most household chores, change a diaper, or lift more than a couple of pounds. My arms hurt all the time. I live with, a burning, pain, with burning pain from my elbows down to my forearms 24 hours a day. Sometimes I feel like ripping my arms off my body, although I often chuckle that I don't actually have the strength to carry out that task. I'm even developing a new tingling sensation and weakness in my legs. Throughout this journey, I've struggled greatly with depression. In some days, life seems completely hopeless. But something in my life did change. About two months away from starting a new church, I began to see the sun peering out from the clouds of depression. Our friends Brady and Amber graciously and gently rebuked me for being a self-centered and hurtful husband. I was also convicted of my own hypocrisy as a man who was about to preach to others what I was not living when I was not living a life of grace myself. The most vital change was a rediscovery of God and his gospel. All three of these things happened at about the same time. And for the first time in a couple of years, the darkness started lifting. It did not totally disappear, but I saw the light of Christ once more. I again hoped in God. I began embracing my trials as something God meant for my good and his glory. I found hope again in the one God of the universe. 
the Lord began to teach me what the late British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon meant when he said that trials teach hard lessons. You see, Spurgeon struggled greatly with depression throughout his life, his life and ministry. At the age of 22, seven people died in a stampede during one of his sermons after someone in the crowd yelled, fire! He never got over that night. He also faced intense public slander during his ministry. His wife, Susanna, was an invalid from her early 30s and could rarely attend church gatherings to hear her husband teach God's word. Physical affliction also marked Spurgeon's own life as he struggled with intense and agonizing seasons of gout. His body ached continuously from rheumatism and inflamed kidneys. And due to these sicknesses, he was out of the church's pulpit about a third of the time. And the dark clouds of depression often hung over him. He once wrote about his depression. My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. All this continued in his life until God finally took him home at the age of 57. How did Spurgeon persevere through his trials? How do you and I persevere through storms that threaten to tear apart the ship? Storms that do not abate. Storms that seem to have no end in sight. A clue is found in a quote often attributed to him. Spurgeon said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. My brothers and sisters, when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of a storm that we cannot understand and that does not seem to have an end, God calls us to turn to him. Not to simply try harder, to grit our teeth, but to throw ourselves into his loving arms. Trust that which we know about him and believe that God is doing more in our suffering, in our storms, than what we might presently see. Knowing that he's right there working out and working through this storm for our good and his glory. Let me pray with you. Our Heavenly Father, these are heavy things. None of us likes to call upon trials in our lives. We can hear these truths but deep down, we, we usually respond in fear and in doubt and many times anger when storms arise. Lord God, I pray that you would draw our hearts and our minds to the story of Jonah. We, we leave this story today in a not great place. There's a storm raging. And we don't have resolution. And for many of my brothers and sisters here today, there's a storm raging and they don't have a resolution. They don't know the end result of that diagnosis. That marriage does not seem to be getting any better. That prodigal child shows no signs of turning. The cloud of depression seems as though it may never lift. On and on we could go. God, I pray that you would teach us in the midst of these storms to hold fast as these waves beat us against the rocks. And we remember that the rock is the rock of ages. May we cling to you, our rock, O oh God, in the midst of storms. May we humbly submit to your refining fire in our life. As painful as it may be, 
so that we can come forth, as Peter says, as pure gold. God, I pray that as a church, we would learn what it means to walk with one another in these storms. That we would obey Galatians where we're told to bear one another's burdens. Not just pat each other on the back and say we'll pray for you and get away as quickly as we can. But to be willing to sit. To be with each other in the midst of these times. God, we thank you for a Savior. We thank you for Jesus Christ who was forsaken in his storm so that we can be certain we will never be forsaken in ours. The Father turned away as Jesus bore our sins. Oh God, I'm so thankful that you will not turn away from us because Jesus has brought us near through his blood. I pray that anyone here who doesn't know that, who doesn't understand the forgiveness and the, the welcoming into God's presence that comes through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that today would be the day that they understand that. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us, we pray, in the midst of our storms to cling to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Before I share the benediction, I just want to invite you up. I, I, I know, I know without, a, without any doubt that there are those here today who are in the midst of storms. And I know it can be kind of a fearful thing, especially if that storm is something that you've brought on yourself through sin, to come and talk to somebody and pray with somebody. But we've got some folks up here who would love to pray with you. I want to invite you to not pass that time by if God's Spirit is is calling you to invite someone else in so that we can walk with you in the midst of your storm. Let me also remind you, dads, as you leave here today, we, we have some books that we want to just uh, encourage you with. Uh, we pray that those will be a blessing to you. Now may the Lord, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich in steadfast love and mercy, keep you from despair in all your troubles and keep you from idolatry in all your joys. Amen. God bless you.